This morning, let me now invite you to join me in Matthew chapter 26. Uh, we're, in the, we're in the narrative of Jesus' trial, and part of that trial is the denial that Peter makes of our Lord. Matthew chapter 26, we're going to begin in verse 69. Matthew 26, uh, we're going to begin in verse 69. All four gospel writers include the denial of Peter. All, all of them do. And in fact, they all emphasize this point of how Peter emphatically denies the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you read the Bible, when you read the New Testament, when you read the Gospels, the apostles and these great men of God do not come off looking like heroes. They come off looking like normal people because that's what they were. These are honest accounts about real people. One of the ways Paul the Apostle describes his ministry, this, this great apostolic ministry of Paul was, he said, we have this treasure in clay pots. The treasure was the gospel. The treasure is the message of Jesus Christ. But the person, the one that delivers it, is a clay pot. And the imagery of the clay pot is there is a weak vessel. It's just, a, just a, a pot of clay. Really not much. It's the gospel that's the great treasure. And we see that. We see that Peter here, this one who was so close to Jesus, is a clay pot as well. So we're going to learn from this today, and then we'll find some encouragement, especially at the end. So hang with me, and, and at the end, uh, we'll find some great encouragement, I think, from this, this, this harrowing example. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 69, the scripture says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. We just sang uh, Amazing Grace. It's the most popular hymn in the English language. It was written by John Newton. John Newton, who was not afraid to express to us in his writing what a depraved and deplorable life he lived before becoming a Christian. John Newton was a slave trader. He earned his income and made his living by going to Africa on ships and enslaving people and taking them to Britain and selling them at profit. Not to mention the, the riotous life that he lived while doing that. But John Newton heard the gospel and believed the gospel and was saved and was redeemed. And he went on to write Amazing Grace, the most popular hymn in the English language. One of John Newton's famous quotes comes from the end of his life. As he was dying, his memory was fading. He was in this time of old age, and in his case, his memory was coming and going. And he essentially said, my memory is shaky, but this I remember, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. 
It's one of the things this account about Peter reminds us of. Pick it up in verse 69 as we look at Peter's denial. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. Keep in mind, Jesus has been brought to the home of the high priest. He is being tried at night illegally inside the house of the, the high priest. It's very unusual. And Peter followed Jesus at a distance. You know, and praise God, he followed him at a distance. And look what happens. A servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. One of the Gospels says that the servant girl was staring at him. So she was eyeing him. And she evidently recognized him. And she essentially marks him as one who was with Jesus, verse 70. But he denied it before all. So there's a crowd there. The servant girl comes up and essentially this, this slave girl interrogates him. And he denies before all and says, I do not know what you mean. Now notice that, that's a bit evasive. That speech there, I don't know what you mean. It's evasive. But as we work through this passage, his denial becomes all the more emphatic. In fact, there's an escalating strength in his denials as we work through this passage. One thing to note here is this first accusation against Peter comes from a servant girl. Now one might expect Peter to be a a bit intimidated by a Roman soldier armed to the teeth. But a servant girl, Peter doesn't confess the Lord to her. Well, let's continue on. Verse 71. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, so she's going to bring the crowds in on this. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he, again, it was obvious. Je- Peter has been traveling with Jesus for about three years now. There's lots of people that had seen Jesus. He was a very public and popular figure. And here, this servant girl, who was probably a servant of the high priest, recognized him. She tells all those standing around, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And now we see his denial escalate. And again, he denied it with an oath. Now, an oath, that was popular back in that day and time. It was essentially a way of affirming the truth by appealing to something greater than you. That they would make oaths on the temple. You, you've heard this, people do this in, in our day and time where people would say, I'll swear on a stack of Bibles. That's trying to heighten the truthfulness that you're trying to convey by swearing on something truthful or greater than you. So Peter invokes an oath. I do not know the man. Je- Peter does not want to be associated with Jesus Christ. Because keep in mind, Jesus Christ is on trial. Jesus has been seized by soldiers and by temple guards. He's been incarcerated, which again has had to have blown Peter's mind because Peter has recognized Jesus as the Christ, this great coming king. And now he's been arrested and he's put on trial by the very people he's been rebuking for three years. So he denied it. I do not know the man. Verse 73, after a little while. Now, this is an extended period of time. Luke's gospel says that it was over an hour. So so this is is not just all happening at once. Peter's warming himself by the fire there with the temple guard. He's already denied Jesus twice now. He's gone from being evasive to taking an oath that he doesn't know Jesus. And he's been there for a while, again, over an hour. So friends, he's had time to think about this. And a bystander, bystanders, so this is the crowd, they come up to Peter and, and say, 
Certainly you too are one of them, for your action betrays you. Now keep in mind, one of the things the high priests and uh, the religious leaders had been doing is they were gathering people to make false witnesses about Jesus. So there's a crowd there. There's temple guards there. There's probably Roman soldiers there. And then there's all the false witnesses they're trying to bring in. So there's, there's all these people, and essentially Jesus has been arrested, and, and, and the, the crowd say, certainly you're one of them, your accent betrays you, because Jesus and his followers primarily were Galileans. That Jesus' ministry prim- primarily was in a very small geographic area in Galilee. That was most of his ministry. Look what Peter says here, verse 74. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. I do not know the man. See the escalation? It goes from being evasive, I don't know what you mean, to denying him with an oath, to now issuing a curse upon himself, which essentially means, may I be cursed by God if this is false. This is the, this is the strongest, most emphatic denial he can make. He invokes a curse from God on himself, and he, he vehemently denies knowing Christ. I do not know the man. And he swears. That's probably, again, the swearing of oaths. Again, just calling upon more and more to try to preserve his innocence that he doesn't know Jesus. And notice immediately the rooster crowed. Now I want to share with you something from Luke's gospel. Something Luke adds that Matthew does not have in his gospel. Luke twenty-two sixty-one. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Again, Luke records that somehow Jesus looks at Peter. Maybe it was through a window because he's in the courtyard of the the high priest. Or maybe they're done with Jesus' trial and he's walking through the courtyard. But but in some way, when Peter denies him, again, you can imagine Peter there, he's swearing he doesn't know this man. He's, He's issuing curses upon himself. I don't know him. And at that moment, the Lord looks at him and their their gazes meet. That's a look I'm sure he never forgot. What a stunning moment. When what Jesus said would happen took place, Peter denies the Lord. Now what can we learn from that? What can we learn from that? What is Matthew trying to show us here? A few lessons this morning. Number one, and I think this is the biggest lesson Matthew's trying to show because of the context of how Matthew has presented Peter so far. Number one, we need to learn the danger of overconfidence. We need to learn the danger of overconfidence. Go back to chapter 26, and let me show you what I mean about the context. This is the same night. This is is essentially right after the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 30. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Yeah, the disciples said it too, but Peter's emphasized here because Peter's the leader. Peter's the spokesman. And here, Peter issues a statement that proves to be incredibly, incredible overconfidence. Bravado. Essentially, Lord, you don't know how strong I am. 
They may deny you, but I'll never do it. And just as vehemently as Peter says that he'll never deny Jesus, what do you see him doing here in our text this morning? Cursing, swearing that he'll never know this man. We need to learn the danger of overconfidence. Just like the Proverbs say, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Peter is an example of that. Peter has all the confidence in the world, all the bravado, all the human moxie, and then he denies the Lord three times over a period of at least an hour. We need to learn this kind of danger of overconfidence as a Christian. Friends, one of the things this shows us is that every Christian is capable of falling and will fall. We're capable of serious falls if we're not careful. A few things about this. We need to remember what we are. Right? We, re- we need to remember what we are. We are weak in the flesh, aren't we? This is just what we are. We are sinners by nature. And we need to remember that. That we don't let overconfidence creep in. I mean, just think about it for friends, about the poor decisions you've made in the past. I mean, all of us, if we've lived any amount of time, have poor decisions in our past that we'd look at and be like, my goodness, that was stupid or foolish. I mean, think about the ones that we still continue to make and we just, we're left scratching our head. How could I have done that again? We just need to realize and recognize what we are. We need to be aware of being subject to being overconfident. We need to distrust our flesh. The scripture says of our hearts, the heart of man is deceitful above all else and is desperately wicked. Proverbs 28, 26 says, he who trusts his heart is a fool. We need to be aware that our our hearts and our flesh isn't guiding us. We We have examples like this in scripture and all through the Bible to warn us about overconfidence. You might ask or say, well, isn't a Christian supposed to have confidence? What is the place then of confidence in the Christian life? Well, it certainly has a place. But the issue is, who do you have confidence in? Where do you find your confidence? It must not be in our fallen flesh, friends. The the arm of flesh will fail you. We dare not trust our own. Our confidence is in God. And how much better of a place to put our confidence than in the sovereign living God, who is all-powerful and almighty, We rest in the shadow of the Almighty. My strength isn't in me. It needs to be in God. Our confidence needs to be in Him. So yes, we have confidence, but it flows from Him. It's not confidence in myself. I'm a failure before a holy God. I need God's help. So many examples of this. Probably my favorite is David in the Old Testament. I love David because the Bible gives us a lot of information about him. David is an incredibly capable man. You compare man to man, David is incredibly capable. In fact, he's, he's one of these people that, I don't know about you, but they really are quite annoying to us normal folks. These people that is just good at everything. Have you ever had the joy of being in the presence of one of these people that is, David, he's a, he's a musician. He plays music for the king. David also is an accomplished author. He wrote many of the Psalms. David also was a great friend. He was a great friend of Jonathan. But David is most famous and most well-known as a great warrior. So here you have literally one of the greatest warriors in ancient history in David. An incredible warrior, an incredible fighter, respected by thousands and thousands of troops and soldiers, even respected by the enemies. The enemies know the songs about him. Where's David's confidence? Here's an incredibly capable man, and his confidence isn't in himself. 
Well, you see it that day when he goes to the battlefield. He's not going to the battlefield. His intent is not to go to the battlefield to fight Goliath. He goes to the battlefield to deliver cheese. What, a, what an important job, right? And, and check on his brothers. But he goes and he hears Goliath, this giant, cursing God. And it angers him. And, and he says, we can't allow this to pass. And essentially what David says to Saul is, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the bear and from the paw of the lion, he'll deliver this Philistine into my hand. And that's what David told Goliath the giant. The battle is the Lord's. David did not go down there saying, you know, I'm really good with a sling. I'm, gonna go, I'm going to go down there, I'm going to take my sling, and I'm going to smoke that guy in between the eyes because I am a great shot with this weapon. Now all that was true, but that's not what he said. What he said shows that his dependence was on, in God. Joseph is another great example of this from Genesis 50. So Joseph is another incredibly capable man who was put in Potiphar's house. He, he became the manager of this Egyptian official. He was doing well. He was going great. And then he was falsely accused of a crime. He went to jail. While he was in jail, he was recognized in the prison as being such a capable man. They put him in control of the jail. They made an inmate the manager of the prison. Because they recognized his competence. So here is a man of incredible competence. And Pharaoh, who is the most powerful man probably in the world of that time, hears that Joseph has the ability to give interpretations of dreams. This was common in the ancient world for them to look to their dreams for for direction and for guidance. And so, So Pharaoh calls Joseph up from the prison. And so here you have him going from the prison to the palace... And he's standing before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says to him, I hear that you have the ability to interpret dreams, because Pharaoh had had this troubling dream that he wants someone to tell him what it means. Now, in that moment, you would expect Joseph, who has proven himself capable, to say, yeah, I'm your man, Pharaoh. I I can do this. I got this. That is not at all what he says. He says, it is not in me. There is a God in heaven who will give Pharaoh his interpretation. So here you have competent men who their confidence is in God. That's one of the ways Peter failed. It's one of the things that led to Peter's denial. He was overconfident. Look at what 1 Corinthians 10.12 says. It's a good warning for us as Christians. 1 Corinthians 10.12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. So number one, we need to learn the danger of overconfidence. Number two, very simply, we need to learn to heed the warnings of Scripture. One of the things Peter had failed to do was he did not heed the warnings of Jesus. Jesus had warned him about this numerous times. I'm just going to read to you Luke's account. Look at how Luke Luke records how Jesus warns Peter that this is coming. Luke 22, 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now just stop there for a minute. Satan demanded to have you. So just like Satan demanded permission to afflict Job. Here Satan demands to have Peter. Now keep in mind, Satan is this powerful adversary. Now you would think Jesus telling Peter that Satan wants you, and what does he want for you? He says he wants to sift you like wheat. That's an imagery from the Old Testament. Essentially what you do with wheat is you remove its head. Okay, you take the head of the wheat off and you throw away that part. Jesus says that's what Satan wants to do with you. It's an image, it's an, it's an idiom for beheading. Peter, Satan, who is this powerful spiritual adversary, wants to take your head off. You would think that would sober a guy up. You would think that would put him on a bit of guard. 
Look what Jesus says, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You see, if you study Peter's life, he goes from an A plus to an F minus in one night. I mean, think about who Peter was. Peter is associated with Jesus in a way that no other man was. One of Jesus' closest friends. One of the ones that Jesus would take along with James and John and teach him. Think about what Peter had been given. Peter had been given the authority to work miracles unlike very, very few people in history. Peter could cast out demons. Peter could heal the sick. He'd been given this authority by Jesus Christ. It's not the norm. It's to demonstrate God's power and his apostleship. Peter had done some amazing miracles. Peter is the guy who walked on water. Peter's the only one that gets out of the boat and walks toward Jesus on the water. This is a... (laughs) This is a guy who's experienced some incredible things. And then all the Gospels point out, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke all point out, Peter's the one who makes this confession. Where Jesus is, after Jesus had prayed all night, he meets with his disciples and he, he says to them, who do men say that I am? And there's all these opinions about Jesus. And some people say that he's John the Baptist come back from the dead. Some people say he's just a prophet. But then Jesus turns it to the, to the twelve and puts the question on them, who do you say that I am? And there's Peter with the correct answer. The most important answer ever made in history, probably. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Recognized him for who he was. It's the first time in the gospel someone confesses Jesus as the Christ. One of his followers do. And Peter goes from that to standing before a slave girl. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Because he didn't heed the warnings of the Lord. He didn't heed the warnings of the Lord. And friends, we need to heed the warnings of Scripture. The Bible's full of them. Number three, we need to beware the danger of overconfidence. Learn to heed the warnings of Scripture. Number three, we need to learn to be spiritually prepared for trying times. I think this is one of the other things that Matthew teaches us with this account of Peter. We need to learn to be spiritually prepared. Look back to chapter 26 and 41, the same night. Look what happens in 26 and 41. You know it. It's probably a verse you've memorized because you've heard it so often. It's one of the most quoted verses of the Bible because it's so apropos for all of us. Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. For indeed, the the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Don't we all live there? You see, Peter was not spiritually prepared. Whenever, Whenever Jesus was going through the greatest distress of his life, he says he was distressed even unto death. That the distress felt like it was going to kill him. What is Peter doing? He's sleeping. What should he have been doing? Praying. Peter was not spiritually prepared for this arrest and this trial. Even though Jesus had been warning him over and over again. He needs to be spiritually prepared. Most of us, there's times in our life when we know we're going to enter a trial, right? I, I tend to think life is just going from one trial to another. And maybe there's some intermediary time there every once in a while. But usually life is one trial to another because of the broken world we live in. We need to be spiritually prepared for when we go into trials. Not just prepared in a worldly way, like buckle my chin strap. No, spiritually prepared. Or maybe for those of you in the trial now, because no doubt in this room there are people in the trial right now. In that terrible trial. What do you do? Well, you need to be spiritually prepared. Let me just give you some ways. First of all is prayer. You have the sovereign almighty God you can call out to for help. You call out to God for help. You appeal to the Lord. You look to the Lord for help. Secondly, you've got God's word. 
Friends, when you go through a trial, particularly the more difficult ones, oftentimes you just don't think straight. You're not thinking right. You need perspective. You need divine guidance. You have divine guidance in the Word of God. You've got what God... You need to hear from God. And friends, you don't always need another human counselor, even though they have their value. More than that, you need to hear from God. And if you're going to be prepared to go through a trial, or if you're in a trial now, you need to listen to what God says. That's what you need. In fact, you have 150 Psalms. Isn't it really? It's, it's not ironic. It's not by mistake that, that the biggest collection of Scripture in the Bible primarily deals with difficult times, the Psalms. Right? We're not, we're not afraid to admit that life is hard and we go through difficult. We're not, gonna, right? we're not pretending that everything's great. That's just unrealistic. No, you have 150 Psalms, many of which are about difficulties in life. Go there for perspective and help. You can learn to pray there as well. Prayer in God's Word, also God's people and God's worship, friends. The worship of God, I think there's power in praising God. There's power in hearing the Word of God. There's power in being in a room and there's help to be found in this room with these people, these Christians. See, I think so many Christians are far too quick to turn to secular sources for counsel and for help. Far better if you need counsel, go to a Shirley Patton who's read the Bible for years and lived the Bible for years. She's going to be a better counselor than most people you could find because she's a believer and a Christian. And that's just one example of many in this room. Go to God's people and look to God's people for help. We need to be spiritually prepared for trying times. Finally, one of the encouraging lessons that come from this account. Praise God, all four gospel writers record this. The most bold spokesman of the apostles denies the Lord three times. It shows that, that every believer is capable of serious failure. And here's the last lesson to learn. Learn that terrible failure does not have to be final. Terrible failure does not have to be Final. Now, in Judas's case that we're going to look at next week as contrasted to Peter, for Judas, his failure was fatal. But it's not that way for the believer in Christ. And even when, not if, even when we experience and go through times and, of terrible failure, it doesn't have to be final. And it shouldn't be final. So you mean we fail the Lord? I think we fail the Lord every day. I believe we fail the Lord every hour. Some failures are more serious than others. But what do you do with that? What do you do when you fail the Lord? Well, we should do what we see Peter do. First of all, humbly repent. Look what it goes on to say about Peter. When Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, this is Matthew 26, 75, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, he went out and wept bitterly. Peter realizes his failure. And in fact, we learn from the rest of Scripture, Peter repented of his sin, of denying the Lord. That's what we all should do. We should humbly repent. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The, the good news is God is merciful to the repentant and to the humble. Isn't that such good news? Because all of us will fail. But the Lord is merciful. And the Lord is full of forgiveness. We humbly repent. And again, like this morning, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. This is a time for Christians to repent. And friends, we remember as Christians, repentance is a regular part of our life. It was part of the regular prayer Jesus gave us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. As sin is a regular part of the Christian life, lamentably, repentance is a regular part of our life. Today is a good day to humbly repent, and the Lord will give you mercy. What else should you do? You should turn to the Lord in faithfulness. Let me, show you, let me call you back to Luke 22 again. Luke 22:32. 32. Look what Jesus says here, and don't miss this. Luke 22:32. 32. 
This is after uh, he's, where he's talking to Peter. Luke twenty-two thirty-two. 32. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again. That's the idea of repentance there. See, Jesus, even before Peter denies Christ, Jesus knows that he'll turn again. When you turn again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knows what's going to happen. And Jesus knows Peter will turn. This is what you should do. You should turn to faithfulness from your failure. From your failure of faith, from your faltering faith, you turn from that and you be faithful. You say, well, I don't, you don't know what I've done, all the failures I have. Well, we've all got them. What you should do is repent today and, and determine and resolve to be faithful from this day forward. Right? That's what you've got ahead of you. You've got today and you've got the, the, whatever time you have left, you need to strive to be faithful. And hopefully, here, again, the church is here to help you do that. One of my Proverbs, my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 24, 16. Look what it says. For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Look what it says about the righteous. The righteous falls. Oh, yeah. Peter's an example. The righteous falls seven times. By the way, that's a number of perfection. Keeps falling and rises again. See, friends, that's what the Christian does. You keep getting back up. You keep being faithful. See, the Christian life, listen to this carefully. It's biblically true. The Christian life is not about being perfect. The Christian life is about persevering. You search the scripture, you're going to find the call to the Christian is to persevere. Persevere. Press forward. Move on. And the good news is, God can use us in amazing ways even after tremendous failure. This is where Peter is one of the great examples of this. You know that. You remember that. God can use us in incredible ways even despite tremendous failure. Just take Peter. And the other Gospels record that after the women report that the tomb is empty, Peter is one of the first people at the tomb. Whenever the disciples, after the resurrection, Jesus is on the shore, Peter and the disciples are fishing, Peter sees him on the shore. He doesn't wait for the boat to get there. Peter dives in the water and swims to the Lord. And then there's this time at the end of John's Gospel. What a, what a conversation. Where three times, not by mistake, Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Did you ever think about why he asked him that three times? It's because Peter denied Jesus three times. And now the Lord in his mercy gives him three opportunities to, to profess his faithfulness to the Lord. And then there's, you understand it's through the preaching of Peter the church begins. The church is born by the preaching of Peter in the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2. And then Peter goes on to write 1 Peter. You know what 1 Peter is about more than anything else? 1 Peter is a call to Christians to endure persecution. That you can make it as a Christian through persecution. He writes a letter like that, and incidentally in that letter, he's learned about the, the, the adversary, the devil, and he says, he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Peter knew it. Peter had experienced that. Well, Chuck Colson is another good example. We'll close with this. Chuck Colson was a top aide to President Nixon. And Colson, in fact, was known as, his, his, his label in the president's men was the hatchet man. I mean, I don't know what that means that you do. I mean, it seems like I have a pretty good idea. But that was his nickname among the president's men. He's Nixon's hatchet man. In fact, Colson said, quote, I would run over my grandmother for the president. This dude's seriously committed. 
Well, he was also seriously involved in the Watergate conspiracy and went to prison, went to jail, and was born again. He was born again. Listen to this quote from Chuck Colson. This is from his book, Born Again. I found myself increasingly drawn to the idea that God had put me in prison for a purpose and that I should do something for those I had left behind. See, Chuck Colson, like Peter will learn, and like all of us who have been saved know, the gospel is about redemption. That God sent Jesus to die for sinners, not for perfect people. He sent to redeem us from our sins. And friends, the call is to trust Jesus, to turn from your sins. And he redeems the sinner. And he grants forgiveness. That's what we remember when we take the Lord's Supper. The scripture says that we do this as often as we do it in remembrance of me. That's what Jesus said. So when we take the cracker and we take the cup, we remember Jesus. The Lord's Supper is for Christians. If you're a believer, what you should do today is examine yourself. The scripture gives us warnings about this, that because of what it represents, because of what it calls to mind, the death of Jesus, that it's a solemnite. This isn't just a cracker and a cup. It's calling to mind the death of Jesus, his body and his blood given for us. So the scripture gives us a warning, let a man examine himself, lest he eat and drink condemnation. So if you're a Christian, you should examine yourself, you should repent of sin, as like all Christians should do, and then you, ta- you should take the, the bread and the cup if you're a believer. Take the bread, take the cup if you're ready to do that. If you're not a Christian, you should take Christ. The offer is there, the free offer of God that God gave his son to die on the cross for sins, to be raised from the dead that you could be forgiven of anything you've done. It's the good news of the gospel. And as Christians, the Lord wants us to do this. So let me ask the deacons to come forward. We're so blessed to have these faithful brothers. What a joy it is to get to be with them and work with them. They serve our church well. They distribute the bread and the cup for us. And as you take that bread and you take that cup, you remember Christ. And as they're passing it out, friends, let me encourage you just to repent and examine yourself and know that the Lord will forgive you.